This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. I'm so delighted to be speaking with you all tonight, and I just want to thank you so much for coming to this talk instead of the Warriors, watching the Warriors game right now. My husband's offered to give updates periodically in the back there. Um, so um, just want to give an intro to myself, um, just a brief intro. So I'm a pediatrician here at UCSF, and I'm also a fellow in integrative medicine at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. They have a new pilot fellowship that started this year, and I was fortunate enough to be one of their first fellows in this program. And I'm also a 2015 graduate of the UCSF Plus um, Pediatric Leadership for the Underserved program. And I have a background in documentary filmmaking as well as a background in medical anthropology. Um, And in my work in uh, medicine, I really am trying to focus on addressing the needs of um, underserved um, uh, youth, teenagers in particular, who are living with chronic illness, and also their family members. I'm also interested in adverse life events and how we can address these with integrative medicine. Um, And just on a personal note, I'll just mention I had a baby three months ago. I'm a new mom to a baby girl. And this has drastically affected my pediatric practice. So I'm learning all sorts of new things right now being a a new mom. So first, I just want to say that I have nothing to disclose. And today I'll be talking about Communitas, which is a mind-body program for teens living with chronic illness that I started as a resident at UCSF. And I've been continuing to to develop this program as a fellow at the Osher Center. And I'll start by sharing a bit of my own story and my inspiration for doing what I do. And then I'll talk about the problem I want to address through Communitas. And then next I'll talk about the program itself, the solution to this problem. And then I'd like to talk a bit about the impact and the research um, that I've been doing on this program. And I'd just like to ask you to save any questions you have for the end of my talk. So before we get officially started with my presentation, I'd like to invite you to experience something that I teach in Communitas. It's a really simple breathing technique called soft belly, and it's something that we always start our groups with, and it helps people get into the room, arrive, get centered, get comfortable and relax, and get into the space. And it's something that can really be practiced at any time or any place. Um, and it's consistently one of the favorite techniques of our participants. Uh, we get rave reviews about this very simple technique. So um, I'd like to just invite you to get into a comfortable position, just feet on the floor, sitting up straight. If you have anything in your lap, you might want to just put that next to you. And I'd like to, to invite you to just go ahead and close your eyes if you feel comfortable. And just begin to breathe deeply. in through your nose and out through your mouth. And imagine your belly is soft. And in your mind, say to yourself the word soft as you breathe in and the word belly as you breathe out. Soft belly. And if thoughts come up, just let them come up and then just gently let them go and bring your awareness back to soft belly.
Okay, let's gradually come back to our bodies and slowly open our eyes. How do you guys feel? Relaxed. What was the other thing? Soft? Softer. I like that. Great. So I'd like to start by talking about some formative experience I had as a young person and my inspiration for doing what I do. So this is a photo of my mother and I when I was a high school student. Um, This is about three weeks before she died of bladder cancer. I was a senior in high school, and um, my journey with her through a three-year battle with bladder cancer really taught me what's at stake for patients and their families and what it's like to live with the ups and downs of illness. And it inspired me to become a doctor who puts the patient and the family's values first and to strive for a kind of medicine that helps people not only heal but to also thrive. And it taught me what a patient does outside of the medicines and the chemo and the surgeries and the pills can sometimes be the best medicine and have the best impact on the patient's health and happiness. Um, Things like creating a healing environment, eating nutritious foods, reducing stress, meditating, connecting with others in similar situations. And these are not aspects of health that most doctors typically have the time or the training to address, but these are the aspects of health that I am really inspired and and passionate about addressing in my medical practice. And I think I share these values with everybody at the Osher Center. Another formative experience for me was I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and I had the opportunity to work at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital as a high school student. And I shadowed a doctor there when I was about 15 years old for the summer, and I got to interview his patients and families about the treatment experience and their illness experience. And what I kept hearing over and over from them was the significant isolation, depression, sadness, disorientation from not only the patient but the parents and also their siblings. And I kept thinking gosh, what if all these kids and families could meet each other? What if we could somehow tear down the walls of this hospital and have people connect to one another and know that they're not alone? Why are we so segmented? Um, and I just wanted people to know that, they were, that there were others around them having a similar experience. And so at that point in my life, I became really, I wanted to be a doctor since I was really young. And at this point, I I really started conceiving of this vision to create a new healing environment, a new healing model and space that brings people together and helps families reorient their lives in a positive way moving forward from illness. So I see our role as physicians as one of helping people not only stay healthy, but also helping them thrive. And I see that role as extending beyond the bounds of the hospital or the clinic. So I came to my residency here at UCSF with an idea to create a program that would address the needs of the ill and their families holistically and connect them together. Um, And this would be a pilot program, in my mind, a pilot program that would serve as a template um, that I could expand on after residency. And I knew that I wanted the program to get at that feeling that I'd had as a young teen, that there was a better way to heal, um, which was in community and which was by engaging the self. And I like to start projects with the end in mind. And I think the end is a vision. It's a, it's a visual piece. Um, it's an image. And so my vision or visual has always been of um, images of healing spaces in the natural world that bring people together from all walks of life to become healthier together. And so the Communitas program is really, the pilot program is really my first step on my path towards this vision. Um, this vision keeps me on track and inspired and moving in the right direction. And so now I'd like to talk about the problem that I was hoping to address through Communitas. So according to the Data Resource Center, 
for child and adolescent health in 2013, 11 million children and teens are living with a chronic condition in the U.S. And these illnesses result in a significant amount of stress that put adolescents and their families at risk for poor mental health, um, poor quality of life, and also risky behaviors. And one study that really hit this home was a cross-sectional survey on the health of teens in Switzerland in 2003. And it found significant differences between teens living with chronic illness and healthy kids in a number of realms. Um, For instance, higher levels of depression in these teens double the number of suicide attempts and double the amount of uh, no seatbelt use as well as drinking while driving. And in pediatrics, I really consider our uh, parents also to be the patients, as they're really the environments in which our kids live. And their well-being and their thoughts about health drastically affect their children's health. And so not surprisingly, many of these parents um, often live with high levels of stress, which has adverse effects on the parents' physical and mental health and well-being. And so one study comparing the, uh, the parents of healthy children with the parents of chronically ill teens found that the latter had lower health-related quality of life in a number of realms, including sleep, social functioning, vitality, positive emotions, and also depressive emotions. And so if we want our kids to get the best care that they can, we have to find ways to empower and support their parents as well. Some paradigms consider serious pediatric illness to be a trauma that may result in a range of psychological outcomes from minimal distress to post-traumatic stress disorder for both the patient and the family. And as a result of this experience, many people suffer from clinically relevant symptoms of depression, anxiety, hyperarousal, post-traumatic stress symptoms, in essence. And this graph is from a study that identified three phases of trauma with relation to illness. So this initial phase where the goal of intervention should be to change the subjective experience of post-traumatic experience. And then there's sort of this early ongoing chronic evolving stage of illness um, with medical treatment where the goal is should be to prevent post-traumatic stress symptoms. And then this sort of long-term phase, which is to reduce um, the experience of post-traumatic stress symptoms with relation to illness. And so I thought, you know, what if we turn this all on its head and reposition illness as progenitors of growth? And being the glass half full sort of person that I am, I'm really prone to seeing negative situations this way. And this idea that trauma can actually lead to life enhancement instead of stress is borne out in the literature in a relatively new concept called post-traumatic growth. And post-traumatic growth is defined as the positive change experienced as a result of the struggle with trauma. And this concept emphasizes the transformative potential of experiences that are highly stressful, including a diagnosis and living with a life-threatening illness. And so the five domains of uh, positive change included in post-traumatic growth are in the realms of new possibilities relating to others, personal strength, appreciation of life, spiritual change, And those studying post-traumatic growth underscore that it's not the event itself, but rather the struggle and the wake of trauma that's believed to lead to post-traumatic growth. So how do we cultivate this instead of um, stress? And so studies focusing on post-traumatic growth report that the factors associated with the potential for growth and resilience are the quality of social support, coping, and also the mental health status of patients and families. So how do we go from illness or trauma leading to stress and related issues rather than rather to leading to growth and resilience and enhanced wellness? 
And so studies looking at post-traumatic growth would suggest that we could accomplish this by improving the psychosocial aspects of the illness experience. And so my solution is an organization called Communitas, whose mission is to address the unmet psychosocial quality of life and healing needs of young people living with chronic illnesses and their families, and help them harness the potential of illness to be transformers for positive growth and cultivation of resilience. So in the face of chronic illness leading many kids down a dark path, Communitas is attempting to turn that on its head and say that adversity and illness can be opportunities to build resilience and affect the patient and family in positive ways. Communitas' vision um, is a world in which illness and adversity connect people rather than isolate them, in which difficulties make people stronger, more resilient, and whole rather than breaking them, and in which meaning, purpose, and insight can be found in coming together around life's most challenging experiences. So I studied anthropology as an undergraduate and a graduate student, and I was always drawn to this concept coined by Victor Turner called communitas. Communitas refers to the bonding and spirit of community that can form when people are connected by liminal experiences. And liminal experiences are these limbo states. And I really see chronic illness as a limbo state between life and death. So people are uh, constantly living with a fear of death, um, one foot in this world and one foot thinking about um, what could happen, and also living in this liminal space between home and hospital. And in these situations, a shared sense of purpose and community can develop, and new insights can be inspired with others who are sharing a similar experience. And people can really be bound together in a way that, that transcends difference, I think. And so I think this concept really gets to the core of the beauty and what can blossom in the wake of a shared tragedy. Um, when the usual social structures are stripped away in these circumstances. So the Communitas pilot program objectives um, were multifold. So one was to empower patients and their family members with mind, body, and self-care skills to improve coping and well-being and foster resilience in the face of adversity. And secondly, we really wanted to facilitate peer support to promote engagement with a diagnosis and emotional awareness and a sense of um, self-awareness as well. Um, thirdly, we wanted to provide access to integrative modalities, adjunct um, modalities to help with uh, symptoms. And we wanted to also provide a forum uh, for discussion of some of the more practical aspects of, of navigating chronic illness. Um, and then also to bolster self-care skills to increase adherence and hope to decrease unplanned visits to medical providers. So just to talk a little bit about mind-body medicine. Um, mind-body medicine focuses on the bi-directional interactions between mind and body and how psychological, emotional, social, and spiritual factors can directly affect health. And mind-body skills can enhance an individual's sense of control and have been de demonstrated to lower sympathetic arousal, decrease anxiety, and to also improve mood. And some examples of these modalities include meditation, mindfulness practices, breath work, biofeedback, guided imagery. There's a growing body of literature reporting the positive psychological and physical health outcomes um, in utilizing mind-body medicine skills and group treatment models for adults living with chronic illness. But there's really not much research in the realm of pediatrics in this area. And so I'd like to highlight one study here, which is a randomized controlled trial, um, looking at the impact of mindfulness and MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction um, program on mood and stress in 90 adult cancer patients. 
And after this intervention, the mean decreases in stress, anger, anxiety, and depression in the treatment group were significantly decreased compared with a control group. And I'm really hoping to contribute to the pediatric research in this area through my program evaluation. One mind-body medicine intervention that has been studied recently in youth with PTSD is a model developed by the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in D.C. And in their study, approximately 500 children living in Gaza participated in a 10-session mind-body skills program. And the treatment group showed significant decreases in post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, depression, and hopelessness. And 80% who met the criteria initially for PTSD no longer did by the end of the program. And the Communitas program draws in the Center for Mind-Body Medicine's model, particularly given its usefulness with traumatized populations. So to get into the nitty-gritty of this program, Communitas right now consists of 10 free two-hour sessions hosted at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. And teen and parent groups meet in separate groups, and they follow the same curriculum. And like I said, the intervention is based on the model um, built by the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. Um, we use this as a framework. And this includes this model includes starting with an opening meditation, something like what we did a few minutes ago. And then we'll, it'll be followed by a group check-in. And our group check-ins are kind of existential. It's about what's coming up in the present moment for, for patients and their parents. And it's non-interpretive. Um, everybody's got a space to talk. And um, you can pass if you don't want to say anything. But it's really about what's coming up in yourself at that moment and not um, analytic. This is followed by a lesson on a technique. So every session will have a different technique that we teach in the mind-body medicine realm. And then we offer an experience of that technique. Um, so the kids can, can practice firsthand. And then we have a time for sharing and processing of that technique and how it affected, affected them. And then we'll do some suggested home practice and always close with a meditation as well. And these groups have been utilized, uh, the Center for Mind-Body Medicine's groups have been utilized in a number of settings, including groups for groups of uh, medical students, um, victims of war-related trauma, and children in school systems. So examples of techniques taught include meditation, breathing techniques, biofeedback, mindfulness practices, movement, guided imagery and visualization, engaging with emotions and journaling, and positive reappraisal. And I'd like to just share an example of one of the techniques that we, that we teach and what happened um, during it. So one of our exercises is called dialogue with a problem, symptom, or issue. And it's where you sort of journal a conversation between yourself and an issue. And one of the kids in our program had a conversation with her depression. She'd become severely depressed and suicidal uh, related to a chronic illness that she had. And she had this conversation with, with depression. And towards the end of the conversation, she said, oh, there's a knock at the door. And she she said, who is it? And the person replied, it's happiness. Will you let me in? And this beautiful smile came over her face. And just you could just see the tension released from her body. She, it was, she came to her own inner wisdom. And this is something I think that's really rare for kids these days, and also particularly kids living with chronic illness who are so medicalized. And they constantly have doctors and parents telling them what to do, when to take their meds. They're constant. They're almost infantilized. So to have this experience, it's so empowering. It was beautiful to see. And that's. I think that really gets to the heart of what these techniques are about: is allowing patients and participants, family members as well, to figure out answers to some of their problems themselves and discover this inner wisdom. 
And the sessions also include um, additional experiences. So every other Saturday, we would have an additional integrative medicine-oriented experience. So we did massage and healing touch one week. Um, we did a yoga class. We did a mindful movement class. And then we also did a music therapy class. I wanted to give them an experience of, of the sort of gamut of integrative modalities and, and other ways that they could help themselves feel better. Um, the sessions also include a free lunch and then social time afterwards. Um, and there's a really a great... Social component. Um, the kids and the parents become very close. They often would do activities, go movies, and um, contact each other um, on the weekends and um, throughout the weeks and check in. And so it really becomes a wonderful support community outside the program itself. So this is a, f- a photo from the first pilot program that ran from January to June of 2014. And I just completed a, a second pilot program um, a few weeks ago. And we have plans to do um, to start integrating these groups more at Osher Center as build visits. Um, and I also hope to do uh, retreats in a natural setting. Um, so this is sort of a template and to, um, from which I'd like to expand into other types of programming. Um, so um, now I'd like to lead you guys in a mindful nutrition exercise. So this is one of the exercises that we do in our group um, You guys may have already had an experience like this before, but try to keep a beginner's mind. And I'm just going to ask my husband, Josh, help pass out um, some things for you guys. So choose either a grape or a piece of chocolate. No judgment if you choose a piece of chocolate. And um, once everybody's got something, we'll start this exercise. All right. So I'd like to invite you to pick up um, your piece of chocolate or your grape in your hand and hold it in your hand kind of eye level and just take a look at it. Look at it as if you're seeing this object for the very first time in your life. This is a new encounter. And so what shape is it? Notice what colors you're seeing in it. How does it reflect light? What does it generally look like? You might want to kind of roll it around and look at it from all angles in your hand. And next, maybe investigate a little bit more closely how it feels. So you might want to hold it in the palm of your hand and kind of get a sense of its weight and its density, what its temperature is, the surface texture. Is it smooth or rough? And now I'd like for you to just think about where it came from and how it got to your hand, the journey that it took to get there. And if you feel comfortable, I'd like to invite you to close your eyes. Hold on to the fruit or the piece of chocolate in your hand. And just imagine this piece of fruit or the chocolate in your mind's eye. Maybe your mouth is starting to water a little bit. Now put the grape or chocolate up to your nose and smell it. And now take a very small bite, very small, and hold it in your mouth. And just roll it around in your mouth. And notice how your mouth is reacting to it.
And so now just start eating the rest of the grape or the piece of chocolate very, very slowly. And when you're done, just go ahead and open your eyes. No rush, though. Most of you guys are done, but there might be some stragglers really enjoying their grape or chocolate. So now just note that your body's one grape, exactly one grape or one piece of chocolate heavier than it was before. So would anybody like to share how that experience was for them? Back there. Maybe sad to eat the grape after I got to know it so well. Oh. She said it made her sad to eat the grape after she'd gotten to know it so well. Well, it's beautiful. I like that. So she's, wow. She said she'd never taken the time to notice the way the inside and the outside of the grape felt inside of her mouth, and it was nice. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I, I realized how unmindful I am mm-hmm. all the time regarding this very personal, vital mm-hmm. activity. Yeah. So he was just saying that he noticed how unmindful he is often regarding this very vital activity that we engage in. <laughs> right. Water, water from the California aqueduct. Yeah. Yeah. So he was just saying he appreciated uh, where where the scrape came from. Yes. Yeah. You. <laughs> She was just saying, in case she didn't hear, um, just thinking about where the scrape came from, and then it was more of a sensual experience. Other senses were parking up. Yeah, it's wonderful. Anybody? Yeah. Great. So she was just saying it brought up memories, really nice memories. Wonderful. Anybody else? Okay. So great. This is, this is always a really rich experience. And imagine being a 13-year-old doing this in a group and having this you know, encounter for the first time. I think when I first did this, I'd never eaten something this way before. And so it was a total revelation to me in my 20s. And... So, you know, I just feel like whenever we do this exercise, it's really offering kids a new way, a new perspective on food that they can carry with them throughout their lives. And they often talk about this exercise being something that was really powerful and changing their relation to food. So we often just sit and eat popcorn and just, you know, grapes, just eat the whole bunch mindlessly in front of the TV. And so um, I think it's really nice to have an experience like this and then to be able to share that with other people. So this is just an example of something that we do and we talk about. 
Um, so now I'd like to just shift gears and talk about the impact of this program on the teens and their parents and get into the research that I've done on this program. So I conducted a mixed method study on the program, and I had the opportunity to present my results at the Pediatric Academic Society's meeting um, last year. I'm going to present the same to you here. The qualitative results and the results for parents are still in analysis, so I'm focusing really on the quantitative results here. Um, and so my objectives were manifold. So one, to examine the feasibility and acceptability of communitas, and then also to examine the preliminary effects of communitas on teens living with life-altering chronic illness and their parents in the following realms. So in physical, mental well-being, coping, stress, mindfulness, and resilience. And this was a single-center, non-controlled, pre-post pilot study. And we gathered data using validated instruments and video interviews at baseline immediately after the intervention and then three months after the final session. And we recruited teens living with life-altering chronic illness along with their available guardians. And they were 13 to 19 years of age and English-speaking. The kids were. We did have some Spanish-speaking adults. Um, and they had to be cognitively intact to participate in the program in a meaningful way. Um, recruitment was via referrals from UCSF inpatient and outpatient providers and community organizations. So um, nurse practitioners, social workers, chaplains, physicians, residents, every pretty much um, any health care provider was referring patients to us. Um, and our outcomes of interest included so feasibility and acceptability, looking at attendance and study retention, and then physical and mental well-being, so using the NIH Promise Global Health Scale. And mood, we use the profile of mood stage, states. Uh, for coping, we use something called the Brief Cope Scale. And for stress, we use the Perceived Stress Scale. For mindfulness, we use this uh, Mindful Attention Awareness Scale. And then for resilience, we did the 14-item resilience scale. And we did paired T-tests to assess the changes from baseline to immediately post-intervention and then three months post-intervention. And we also calculated, this is getting a little statistical here, but um, it's okay if this is going over your head a little bit, um, but Cohen's D effect sizes, which is the mean difference divided by the standard deviation. And this helped us to understand the degree to which an effect was present in the population. And so one set of thresholds uses 0.2 for a small effect size and 0.5 for medium and then 0.8 for a large Our recruitment goal was about one and a half to two times the ideal number for a group, which is about eight to 10 kids. And so our recruitment goal was 15 to 20 teens. We had 49 referrals to the program and 31 were not enrolled for various reasons, um, just not meeting the inclusion criteria or conflicting schedules. We enrolled 18 and had seven dropouts before the program began. And this was typically due to illness exacerbation, so kids being in in and out of the hospital or activity conflicts. We unfortunately had one kid die before the program started. Um, Ten came to the first session, and we had one dropout after one session, and then nine kids attended at least four of the sessions. So our average age was about 15 years, with a range of 13 to 18, and it was 67% female, um, about eight years from time of diagnosis, with a range of 15 to 16, sorry, half a year to 16 years, and the majority of these kids were publicly insured. Um, it was 75% mothers, and teens' average attendance was about seven and a half, 7.3 sessions, with a range of 4 to 10, and parents attended about 7.5 sessions, with a range of 4 to 10 as well. 
And so a range of diagnoses was represented in this group, um, things like juvenile idiopathic arthritis, various malignancies, pulmonary disorders, neuromuscular um, disease. It was really ranged the, the spectrum of pediatric chronic illness. And so for our results on physical and mental well-being, we saw statistically significant improvements using the NIH Promise Global Health Measure. And both had effect sizes in the large range as well. For our results in the realm of mood, we saw statistically significant improvements in tension and anger, both with large effect sizes. And we saw moderate effect sizes in depression and fatigue. But these did not quite reach statistical significance. For coping, we saw statistically significant decreases in distraction and disengagement with a large effect size. And we saw moderate effect sizes in denial, substance abuse, positive reframing, um, but these did not quite reach statistical significance. And we saw statistically significant decreases in stress with a large effect size. Um, And we saw large effect sizes in the realms of resilience and mindfulness, but these did not quite reach statistical significance. Um, So eight out of nine of the teens said that they would want to participate in this program again, and all of the parents said that they said that they would. So there's some obvious limitations to the study. It was a pilot study. There was no control group. It's a very small sample size, and it's all based on patient reporting, so no objective measures. Um, It was also multi-component, so there's the supportive nature of the group, and then there are the skills that are being learned. And it's hard to say, you know, was it the skills? Was it the group support? And I think it's some alchemy of both. Um, And I I do think the qualitative uh, research kind of gets at that question of what was most helpful, but um, it's really hard to, it's hard to say. Um, And so just to talk a little bit about phase two of the pilot, I just completed phase two. We ran January to June, um, followed the same curriculum, did 10 sessions, separate teen and parent groups. Um, The illness categories fell a little bit differently in this program, so it was more um, majority pain syndrome and migraine, chronic headache. Um, And we had some kids with cancer, GI issues, neurologic issues, um, pulmonary, lung issues, um, and rheumatologic, so autoimmune conditions. And we enrolled 15 families, and my plan is to do a pooled analysis, pooling these two groups together of these two programs. So now I'd like to show a video that I made on the program. I mentioned that I was a former documentary filmmaker, and I just can't help myself if there's an opportunity to make a a video um, on something. So I think this really will give you a window into the more qualitative impact the program had on the patients and their parents. So I'm just going to start it up. It began when I was two. I was diagnosed with um, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which is a disease that attacks your joints and the tissues. When I was 10 years old, I got paralyzed by a stray bullet. Someone was driving a gas station across the street. And the bullet, it went through my kidney, my spleen, and it chipped my spinal cord. My illness started in 2008. That's when they diagnosed me with a disease in the lungs. I don't really know the name because the name is like unknown because they really don't know what it is or how did it happen. With an illness, everything's stripped away from you. Like you're stuck in a hospital or you're stuck taking meds all the time, which is kind of, it beats down on you and it wears you down. Serious chronic illnesses put kids at risk for low well-being, severe depression, and just overall poor quality of life. 
I've come to feel that all this effort that we put into medical therapeutics and physical health really just doesn't seem very meaningful if these kids aren't happy and thriving. So with this in mind, I've created Communitas, which is an organization that provides integrative medicine education and experiences, peer support, and empowerment with self-care skills for young people living with chronic illness, as well as to their family members. The mission of Communitas is to meet some of the unmet psychosocial needs of young people living with chronic conditions and help them live happier, healthier, and more resilient lives. We teach mind, body, and mindfulness techniques, including meditation, breath work, guided imagery, positive reframing, movement, and using drawings and writing to deal with problems. We also provide experiences of other complementary modalities, such as massage and music therapy, dance and yoga, just to name a few. The integrative medicine, I think, is the only way to go. My son has chronic pain. I don't want to be taking pills forever. So any tools and any ways to communicate, which is also a tool. So for my injury, I get chronic nerve pain, and a lot of times when it's really bad, I'll get like really anxious. And so three nights ago, I was doing a breathing technique to kind of calm myself down because I was really anxious and out of control. Uh, when I'm ever getting overwhelmed or yeah, I'm in a flare for my arthritis, I use the breathing to make me calm down and relax and centered. I always have trouble breathing, so basically I just try breathing in and out and just closing my eyes and just focusing on my breathing or imagining something else. All of these skills and practices help young people and their families to participate in improving their health and well-being. It's a very cool thing. We all sit in a circle and we talk and you can feel the energy in the room, like you can feel what everyone's been through, but also how we're here for each other and we're here to listen. It's not even about giving advice or learning things, it's just about being there and understanding each other. May I ask what type of kids we have? Um, Astrocytoma. My biggest problem was with my pills and going to the um, Emergency room. I'm extremely nervous and paranoid about my upcoming surgery. I remember um, when I was healthy, um, I used to walk a lot. I used to help my mom a lot. I really miss those days. I like. I don't have fear. I have strength to do it now. Mm -hmm. From this group, everyone has their own story, their own challenges. So you learn from them. You learn not to give up, how sometimes people are worse than you, and just being inspired of, of their stories and what they've been through. Come and sit with your feet on the floor. The, the kids are in one location and the adults are in another location, and adults could share their experiences. My mom has changed a lot through this. She has become more independent, she's become more carefree and relaxed, and we kind of talk about the sessions after we go home. We say, what have you learned? And she always has these stories about what she learned from other people. So it's cool to see her kind of relax and de-stress and let go of what we're going through. I am less panicky, better able to deal with my anxiety when I do have anxiety. They've given us so many different ways of approaching health in an alternative way other than taking a drug or going to see a doctor, taking my own health in my own hands to have a better life. Having these tools and a whole tool bag of tools has just been really a gift.
The Communities program has helped me overcome the feeling of being alone and accepted, and I'm a happier person. Since starting the program, I noticed my daughter is a lot happier and a lot healthier. We've not been in the hospital, which is a good thing, and um, I believe that the coping skills really do help a lot. Antes era cada vez llamar a la ambulancia para que fuera como dos tres veces por semana y porque no hallaba qué hacer pero ahora ya no gracias a Dios que ya como que me sirvió mucho también cuando oigo a cada uno de los padres y yo digo oh, voy a hacer esto oh, voy a eso. There's certainly a lot of value to doing this. It's very groundbreaking. Oh, yeah. No, I just want to acknowledge um, the fact that this is our final group together. But if you say one or two words that capture and kind of honor the time that you've spent here together. Un placer para usted. and feeling like you're a part of something, feeling like, okay, we're the same almost. It's really special. The Communitas program, it makes me feel like I'm not just, like I'm not alone. Like, it just, I'm not just getting picked on by fate. Like, it, this things just happening to everyone, not just me. It just makes you feel better that it's not like you're singled out. Kavitas has helped me overcome fears on my disease of uh, coming back or fears of losing things or losing my friends. Now I let all that fear go. I'm like, uh, everything will be all right. There might be hard times, but maybe when a door closes, other doors open up. In the face of chronic illness leading many kids down a dark path, Communitas is attempting to really turn that on its head and say that adversity and illness can actually be opportunities to build resilience and affect the patient and the family in positive ways. So I just want to um, give a 
shout out to a lot of people and institutions. Um, so lots of thank yous. Um, so the Mount Zion Health Fund um, that helped me get this program off the ground, the pilot program, gave a very generous grant um, and enabled me to turn these ideas into realities. Um, also the UCSF Patient Care Fund. And just want to thank my content advisor, so Jim Gordon of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, as well as David Becker, the Osher Center, um, research mentors, Frederick Hecht and Judith Moskowitz, um, and my co-facilitators, um, Cliff Smith, Kelsey Menahan, and Gerald um, Kemmel, and numerous volunteers from the UCSF medical um, student community, as well as um, just the UCSF community. And especially want to thank the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine for providing so much support and um, infrastructure and guidance and mentorship. Um, and then just community partners and supporters, um, children, um, California uh, Children's Services, as well as support for children, a family with disabilities, and UCSF in general, um, and just a number of people. I won't uh, name everybody on this list, but uh, a number of thank yous. A lot of this couldn't have happened without the help of mil- uh, many, many people. So, um, comments or questions? Yeah, do, do you have this program in Oakland at? Uh you know, um, you're not the first to ask me that question. I actually just moved to Oakland myself um, a, a couple of months ago, and it's not there yet, but I'd love to um, roll something out there in the future. So it's just a matter of resources, and um, but that, that would be a wonderful, that's a goal, to do something like this over there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, the, in the, yeah, go for it. <laughs> oh. Yes. Reference to different scales. Uh huh. Where can I get more information about those scales? Oh, sure. Um, so the question was just um, I talked about a number of scales. There's a slide about scales and where can she get more information. Um, so you can use Google, <laughs> first of all. So if you were to um, really Google any of those, uh, you could you can find those instruments. Some of them are proprietary, and you would have to, if you wanted to use them in your own, re- are you a researcher or just interested and curious about what they are? Okay. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, so um, some are proprietary and some are public. Um, and so you could look them up and then, you know, write to, if it's a, something that needs to be bought. Um, I can actually talk to you afterwards if you want and um, give you some resources. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Hi. Here. Um, you mentioned this was modeled on the Center for Mind Body Medicine. What, how would you compare what you, what have you tweaked or differences? Yeah, um, so this program is addressing, you know, teens and Center for Mind Body Medicine. Um, their program uh, does have some, they do have programming for teens and children, but um, I, I did feel that some of um, some of their elements are not quite as active, so we tried to do some slightly more active um, exercises in our in our program. And I'm also hoping so the Center for Mind Body Medicine has a group that's really just mind body skills, and this program has a social component as well as in the future I'm hoping to have a nature um, gardening component, a retreat, um, have this be a retreat program in a natural setting, and really um, bolster. Uh, nutritional information. So that's something that the Center for Mind Body Medicine doesn't do. So we're kind of trying to branch out into nutrition, the outdoors, um, and other areas in integrative medicine. So this is sort of the framework for just the skills that we provide. But we're 
bolstering, bolstering this with other integrative medicine approaches. So, I think there was a question, this man, gentleman uh, back here. Yeah. about adversity being a, some surprise sometimes. Uh, there's a wonderful book out from Stanford, a neurosurgeon about to uh, complete his residency, finds out he has stage four lung cancer, and um, he and his wife, who's also a doctor, decide to have a baby. And uh, his whole description of the process ends up with a successful birth. The baby's brought into him, and as he's dying, he finds himself shocked to see how much healing and energy and power that baby brought to him. Hmm. It was the opposite of what we normally do, and children don't always hear that from us. Your patients must feel at times they're a burden on their family instead of a source mm-hmm. of inspiration to them. And mm-hmm. It's not easy to tell young people that they are mm. a powerful asset to us in our personal lives and our family. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, that did come up in the groups a lot where um, kids would share that they, you know, felt like they would drag their family down and they're constantly in the hospital and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I think the parents, so I, I was a facilitator for the, the kids group. Um, and so I didn't really get to hear as much of what the parents shared, but I know from the, my co-facilitator who did the parents group, um, that parents, he said, would often cry and talk about, you know, how they're, they're, they wish their kid understood how much they were an inspiration and they felt like that was, they weren't able to get through because they're teens and it's hard to communicate at that time, especially in a poignant sort of heartfelt way. I think there's a lot of pushing back from teens and adults at that time period. So I think the program created the space um, for communication actually between adults and their kids. And so they would learn the same skills and they'd get to go home and talk about them. And so I think it brought parents and teens closer and I think it was really um, enriching in that way. And I think conver- difficult conversations were had because of the program, because of this bonding that happened. Um, but th- I think that's a really, really beautiful point. Yes. I was just curious of how, how you saw the future of your program. Where's it going? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the question was, where do I see the program going in the future? So, like I said, this is this is a pilot program, and I have this big vision to really expand this and develop this. And um, as you said, too, the kids that are in these programs are going to be growing up. So just to address that question, I think, you know, the kids who participate in this program, um, my goal was that, that these skills and that this program would be something that could not only help with the illness, but also help with life itself moving forward. That these things, that illness is this reorienting process and can be a reorienting process for better um, health enhancement and, and betterment. And so I hope that this program, as kids grow up, as these kids grow up and move on into their lives and families and college, whatever they're doing next, that they're, they, they take this program with them and what they learned. But in terms of the program itself and where I'd like to go with it, so I'd like to have a, a multi-tiered sort of program. So um, I'd like to continue doing outpatient programming and kind of an urban retreat type setting, which is what I've been doing here. That's something that people could attend on the weekends, every weekend, every other weekend, and have a group like this um, with also with more um, nutritional 
information and education and a bit more expansion into the integrative medicine world at large. We really focused on mind-body medicine in this. Um, and then secondly, I'd lo- really the, the big vision would be to have a retreat program in a natural setting because I think that when you get people out into nature, you really allow them the opportunity to shift and bond and um, having multiple days allows people to really get close and to have this lived experience of mind body practices as well as integrative practices. Um, and so there's, there's that. And then I think it would be great. Some people have said, you know, is this possible to do in the hospital when kids are hospitalized? So I'm exploring the idea of, could I do something in the hospital setting and have people who are just, you know, there for a few weeks, do some participate in something like this while they're chronically in the hospital. Um, so kind of multifaceted and I'm, I'm working in terms of funding. I'm, I'm definitely looking for it and seeking it. And, um, so I think I'm hopeful that it will continue to be funded and then, you know, we'll be able to expand based on this. So yeah, thanks for the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so I'm not sure. I'd have to look at each of the scales themselves and go into that um, with our statistician and sort of see, because each one would be something a little bit different. Um, but it is um, so significant, so a significant change. On um, Were there specific ones? Um, yeah. Yeah. I got the overall feeling, but I was just wondering how significant Yeah. So statistically significant um, yeah. is, yeah, how significant. Right. I'd have to go back and look at that information specifically. That's a great question. Yeah. Do you address death and dying? So the question was, do we address death or dying with the children or their parents? Um, If it comes up, we don't have a topic 
called death and dying, um, or, you know, a didactic session, but it does come up sometimes in the group. So a lot of the discussion is kind of based on the check-in. So we'll talk, you know, we have these mind body skills that we're teaching, but the check-ins that happen just after our opening meditation, often, you know, people will bring up things that are weighing on them. And sometimes that lead that leads into discussions where, you know, somebody might say, I'm worried I'm not going to be, I, I don't, I remember somebody saying, I don't really care about school. You know, I don't really participate in this because I don't really know if I'm going to, that's really relevant to me or if I'm going to be here later on, that sort of thing. And so it'll come up in little ways like that. And then the next person who checks in might, that might tee off some thought about, you know, um, that for them and their future and then might sway the discussion a little bit more, but we don't have a uh, particular, it's really, it's really skewed by the, um, the, the participants in the session, what they what they want to talk about, what they're feeling at the moment. So that's a good question. All right, thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.